The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 206 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. So glad to be back with you again this week. We have got a fantastic conversation coming up, but first off, we do want to thank uh, a new reviewer. The Apple Podcast listener name is Mrs. A-E-H. Thank you so much for your five-star review as well as your wonderful kind words. These reviews not only mean the world to us personally, but they certainly help the show to be found. The more reviews we get and the more five-star reviews especially, the more when people are searching for good content, they come across our show. So thank you so much. Uh, This week on the podcast, my guest, Dr. Stephen Neal. What a fascinating, incredible man. He not only is a very successful surgeon, uh, but he's an incredible artist who has taken on this just amazing vision. It's a huge project uh, that he's going to tell you all about. And I was so inspired by his enthusiasm and his love of the gospel. And anyone who takes on, I mean, this is an audacious goal that he has. And uh, he is just an amazing, incredible man. And coming up this week in my Latter-day life, the power of one. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today here on the Latter-day Lives podcast, my guest is the visionary artist behind a very exciting new project. On top of uh, some art you already likely know, we're going to talk about all of that. Dr. Stephen Neal, welcome to the show. Thank you, Sean. So glad to have you on. There's uh, some artwork that I already know, in fact, that my family has taken some photos in front of, so I'll be excited to talk about that. Mm -hmm. You also have some big stuff coming up, but first of all, let's get to know you a little better. Tell us a little bit about where you're from and where you grew up. I was born in Nephi, Utah, lived there about three months, moved to Salt Lake City, and uh, I was uh, in Salt Lake City then. When I really grew up in Murray, Utah. I'm a Murray boy. Yeah. Went to Murray High School, went to Liberty Elementary School and Riverview Junior High School. That's where I grew up. Mm. And did you grow up where you, uh, was your family members of the church? Yes. My, uh, my father's uh, always been a musician. He taught music and um, he wanted to be in the Tabernacle Choir. That's why he moved to Salt Lake, and he was in that choir for 30 years, my mother for 20 years. So music is real heavy. Uh, it's a heavy heritage in our family. Did you inherit those musical abilities? I did. <laughs> oh, wonderful. Was, music was my primary language. And so why am I in the visual arts? It's because I thought I could do more. Um, I mean, I enjoy singing, uh, obviously, singing choirs and my junior high school, really high school years were spent uh, playing the guitar and uh, writing a little bit of music and performing and doing that and on stage at the, at the high school. So I liked that as a social guy. But uh, there was change. You know, I, I was, I guess I've always been an artist. It, there came a point in time 
if actually, believe it or not, it was during medical school where I made a conscious switch that I thought I could, I could do more in the visual arts than in music. Did the whole family, is it, an, is it like an artistic family? Do you think it's a DNA thing or were you just raised in that culture? Well, my, uh, I mean, be, because we were in music, we had a musical family. My older brother, uh, he, he, uh, he did some graphic arts. Uh, and I remember watching my father as a little boy. He was making a big mosaic, which was, was six feet tall and maybe four feet wide. And he got the uh, old instructor. Remember the instructor? It was a church magazine and it had the resurrected savior on the front of it. So he started drawing that on a piece of plywood. And then with mosaic, he cut that and glue it into place. And we still have that. That's kind of a little family heirloom. I'm thinking about that. Uh, that's the kind of project mentality that I have. And uh, I remember watching my dad do that when I was just a little boy. So, But not a lot of us went into graphic arts or doing what I'm doing. They're mainly musical. At what age did you realize that you could, and, and was it drawing? I mean, we're going to talk your, your primary medium right now from what we see is sculpting. But I assume that when you were younger, it manifested through through drawing. Yes, um, all was would draw. Um, I remember drawing things out of the Boy Scout handbook. There were showed the different kinds of fish, and I would draw <laughs> those. I still have that somewhere. My my daughters uh, put together a book that had my early stuff in it. Um, what got me into painting? was uh, junior high school. And back then it was the 60s and it was the San Francisco hippie stuff. And I had a lot of friends who wanted psychedelic posters. <laughs> and so I started doing those, you know. And here's the crazy thing is um, after doing that, I thought, hey, I want to do a gigantic psychedelic poster on butcher paper. It was 10 feet long. And whatever the sheet is, is probably five feet wide. And I started doing it by pen and by tempera paints. And after a while, I thought, why am I going to put all this time on such a, a medium that's just going to be destroyed in a couple of years? you got to put it on something that's more durable. So um, I started out by getting um, some of mom's old sheets that she threw away. And I get this muslin and I stretched it over wood, plywood. And then I thought, you know what? I'm not going to do a psychedelic poster. I'm going to do an oil painting. My mom learned how to oil paint in Relief Society. <laughs> and she, has, uh, she had this old paint box and a palette. And she gave that to me for, my, uh, uh, for Christmas. I was in the eighth grade. And to this day, I still use those two. I use that paint box and this palette. All the paintings I've ever painted that's what I've used as a tribute to her. Oh, that's neat. So I started painting on this big, this board. And uh, it became, it was 10 feet long and five feet tall. And uh, it took me two years. That was my first oil painting. Hangs in my garage. It's the only place we can put it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you did end up doing like a psychedelic kind of a nope. 60s thing? Uh, I discarded it because, you know, when I changed to this more permanent kind of thing, I thought, well, that's kind of trendy. Let me do actually a painting. It's 50 life-size birds. Wow. Okay. It's the busiest painting you've ever seen. 
<laughs> sounds really impressive. Uh, did you start uh, sculpting when you were younger? No, that's a different story. Okay. See, I was first an oil painter. I mean, I was a graphic arts and I did that for, gee, a long time. Um, when I came back from my mission, I really wanted to get some instruction in oil painting because I'd kind of done it on my own. So uh, Gary Smith, he was my teacher down at BYU. He's made uh, quite a name for himself, but he was, an, it was a night class and I took painting with him. And uh, he taught me some basics that I didn't know. Uh, and so I started painting more seriously um, at that point. And uh, in fact, um, in medical school, uh, I, I painted my first, you have to hear this first before you, you understand, why am I doing this sculpture park? It really is two stories that have fused. They had an intersection, they came together. So you have to hear the first story. It has to do with oil painting. Uh, 1976, I think it was February, I was attending a 12-stake fireside at BYU, the, the, the Mac Center. And uh, my then fiance wife, we, I mean, we weren't married yet, but we were sitting side by side and it was um, President Packer. He was elder Boyd K. Packer at the time. He gave a, uh, an address that was uh, the art and the message of the restoration. And I swear he was only given that to me. Uh, there were a lot of people there, but I, it, it really hit me hard. And uh, there's a couple of things he said in there that really made sense to me. They really um, applied, I thought, to me. He said that the message of the restoration has never been fully expressed in music and art and sculpture. And um, I think when that happens, it will be by... Uh, artists who maybe aren't the best artists. We have plenty of good artists in church, but they choose secular things. So he thought it would be those of us who maybe have talent that's barely adequate, that those would be the people <laughs> that would do this. And, and, and at the time I said, that's me. Uh, I, I, I painted birds and I painted animals and, uh, and forest scenes and landscapes, but I never did figures. That was, to me, was really a challenge. How are you ever going to paint figures? There's no way you're going to do Book of Mormon art or Message of the Restoration unless you can draw or paint figures. And so I made a covenant. And this is the first part of the story. I made a covenant. If the Lord would bless my talents, I would do, I would try to depict in oil paintings the Message of the Restoration particularly the Book of Mormon, which I've always loved. And that's how I started out doing that. The first painting I did was Enos praying, uh, kind of did a, a, a self-portrait. I, I started painting pictures of the Book of Mormon. And uh, I did this in medical school when I wasn't studying, you know, at home. And then I went and got in my residency and I went to uh, San Diego to train surgically in head and neck surgery which is where the second part of the story, story comes. But I was still much, very much a painter. And uh, I wanted to do Lehigh's Dream. And people don't know my name, but most people in Salt Lake have seen 
this painting. It sat in the museum for 30 years. It took about two years to finish that one. And in order to depict the figures in the building, the great and spacious building, it was going to have to become massive. That's how it got so big, because I didn't do paintings that big yet. And um, my mother-in-law, she says, uh, why don't you submit this to, there's an art contest. It's the first one with the church art museum. And I did, and it, it won the grand prize. And they, wow. I wasn't going to go because I was up in Oregon after that. And they called me up and said, you better come down because you've won a prize. So I didn't know what had won, but that became, uh, well, of course they wanted to buy it. And I said, it's not for sale. It's my oldest daughter, Heidi. It's her heirloom. Cause I, I started doing these paintings for my daughters. Um, so they said, uh, well, if we can't have it, can we put it in the museum? And I said, you can have it in the museum as long as you have it on open display. So it was there for 30 something years. Wow. So that's what, how it started. And uh, if you don't know what painting I'm talking about, it's a very international building. It has 5,000 years of the world's architecture combined into one building and all the great architectural styles. I put that in there, even our own modern era. Um, and uh, it has the people of the world, not just Lehi's family. And, and they, in fact, they used that for "Come Follow Me" for the Lehi's dream last year when we did. Yeah, that. that's a beautiful, beautiful piece. I can't even imagine how long that must have taken. It took two years, but I yeah, was, I was I was training in surgery too, so kind of a um, yeah, long yeah. It's drawing. a gorgeous piece. Yeah. So that was, and I've done other Book of Mormon paintings. So how did I get into sculpture? Uh, that's the second story refused when I was, uh, we were learning how to do facial plastic surgery. I'm, that's what I do. And, uh, my, uh, my mentor, my professor said, if you want to become a better, uh, a better surgeon, take up sculpture. Now this person, his name was Leslie Bernstein. Anybody who's been in my field of either ears, nose and throat or facial plastic, they know that name. Um, but he said, uh, he, he, I showed him my art, what I'd done. And he says, you need to take up sculpture, uh, because you'll be a better surgeon. I, and I says, why is that? Because the biggest errors or the usual errors made in plastic surgery are not by technique. All the techniques are made known to everybody. Uh, there's no, there are no secrets. The biggest mistakes are made in judgment. Mm. So when you do sculpture, that's on the right side of the brain for, you know, left dominant people. And uh, it's not where doctors live. Doctors live on the left side of the brain. They get admitted to medical school for left side of the brain skills. Right side of the brain is where art lives. It's where images live. It's where shapes live, recognition, directions and so forth. And uh, that's what you develop. You see it before you do it. So I took up sculpture. In fact, I had a professor down in University of California, San Diego, who was a sculptor, and he started me to do clay. That was in 1986, 1987. So I started doing sculpture, and I, would, I was doing busts of my daughters. I have six daughters, and uh, it was a really hard thing to start sculpting young children. You should you should sculpt an old person who sits really still and has lots of wrinkles. <laughs> but these children are up and running around. They used to scream when they see me coming. Oh, no, dad wants to sit me down and sculpt me. But I sculpted each one of my daughters. And uh, 
I took them to the foundry. That's where I learned where the bronze foundries were in Oregon. I used uh, Valley Bronze and then Parks Bronze, but um, something else happened during this time. So I've got all this painting stuff. I've got quite a, a, a corpus of works and I'm just kind of doing busts as well. And then I got, um, this had to do um, when I was in a, I attended a, the temple for the first time that there was music. Michael Ballum, remember, he was in there and so forth. But there was music in the temple session. And this particular uh, session was just absolutely overwhelming to me. Um, felt the spirit really strongly. And um, I tell people, I don't see visions like, like Prophet Joseph saw visions, but that's about as close as I've come. Because I could actually see a visual representation of a park, a sculpture park. It had to do with the Book of Mormon. And um, at the same time, I understood what one sentence uh, in my patriarchal blessing said that I'd never understood until that time. I was 45 years old. And uh, this was something that I was expected to do. And I made another covenant that I would do that. Uh, so these two stories have kind of come together, but it was on the basis of a covenant that I made why I'm doing what I'm doing. Um, why would anybody be so crazy to do this? Uh, because it's tens of thousands of hours now that I put in. And it was a very lonely journey for a good deal of that. Uh, I would tell people what I was trying to do and a lot of them would smile. They would all say, oh, that's so ambitious. And I think they're thinking, that's so crazy. You're never going to get it done. <laughs> well, let's get into what the what is. And then I want to go back to the steps that have led up to it. So okay. what we're what we're talking about, and we've had built up nice anticipation now, which is awesome. Uh, what we're talking about is a sculpture park, uh, as you've alluded to. Tell us what the big vision is for this sculpture park. Well, the big vision, uh, and it's evolved somewhat. Uh, there are two parks, two gardens, if you will. Uh, one is Christ in America Garden, and the other garden is the American Covenant Garden. They're both linked by the Book of Mormon. First Nephi chapter 13 tells all about America. The book of scripture for America is the Book of Mormon. The Bible mentions it twice if you want to talk about other sheep I have, if you want to talk about uh, Genesis chapter 49, where Joseph is a fruitful branch, even uh, over the wall kind of a thing. So the Christ in America garden is where most of the sculpture has been created. Uh, and if you can visualize this in your head, um, there are two very great sculptures. One of them, they're both large. One is a figure of the Savior, 18 feet tall. And he is sitting uh, basically um, on a pedestal, which is a pool representing the golden plates. And that fills up with water. The water comes down these pages and then falls uh, maybe 20 feet below into a pool. And down in the pool is a, a visual representation of the globe, the east and the west hemispheres. And you have what I, we call the hands of man. If you look at them from far away, they look like two hands, which are adoring the Savior, worshiping. 
but the fingers are life-size figures of humans. And that's the old world and the new world, basically. Wow. So that's the one end. On the other end, they're like bookends, is the title of liberty, which I've been showing you here. The title yeah. of liberty uh, is like an entrance into the, the uh, American Covenant Garden, into that part of the garden. But it has uh, Captain Moroni, and he's holding the title of liberty, and he's standing on top of a, a, a hill, a, a kind of a, a, short, a small hill, a low hill. And uh, this title of liberty, if you look at it, from one end, it only says, in memory of our God, our religion, our peace, our freedom, our wives and children. On the other side, however, you have some of old glory morphed into that. It blends into that. And grabbing this title of liberty is an infant. The infant, it represents the infant America. And who's holding the infant but the father of our country, George Washington's holding. He also mm. represents the Revolutionary War. Then you have other soldiers in each of the main of different eras who have fought for the freedom of America. You have civil war, both the South and the North, both of their, their uniforms are kind of blended into that figure. And it's a black man. It's a, a fellow, Brother Rashid, he was in our ward. And I, I sculpted him uh, as this uh, civil war figure. Then we have World War II, in fact, I took one of the figures uh, from uh, Mount Suribachi and uh, pushing up that flag and yeah. uh, Iwo Jima. Iwo Jima. And I sculpted that uh, person. And then on the very end, stooping down and holding the pole is one of my patients uh, who fought in Desert Storm. She's a female, uh, a woman wow. soldier. So you have different eras, all who yeah. are willing to fight and die for our freedom. And George Washington and Moroni, if you compare them, George Washington had his own moment uh, um, like Moroni did. And that was, uh, I, you may have heard of it before, but December 31st, 1776, um, what, left, what he had left of his soldiers they were up there. The time that they volunteered was over and they were going home. And it was uh, a hard, it had been a hard uh, uh, march. They'd had lots of uh, um, problems, starvation almost and losing and so forth. Um, but this is the way it rolled out. George Washington rides up with on blue skin, his horse, and he says, those who are going to re-enlist as the drum rolls, those who are going to re-enlist, step forward. The drum sounded, nobody stepped forward. So he turned on his horse and he went back, but he stopped and he came back and he gave what sounded like Moroni, his speech. He said, um, my poor man, he says, I know not how to spare you. You have borne the brunt of the battle but this is for your wives and your children and your freedom. Hmm. And he gave them a heartfelt speech and few started stepping forward and more and more. And they all basically stepped forward, re-enlisted and the revolution could go forward. And, and it was very close to failing right there. So I've never I, heard that. I wow. like putting those all together uh, in that piece. Now these are figures, George Washington will be 12 feet tall in this, in this sculpture. 
And it's 25 feet from the top of Moroni's sword to the ground. It'll be on a four-foot pedestal. So let's go back to, you know, you get this, you know, vision of what this is supposed to be. You covenant that, hey, I'm going to bring all these elements together. You go to bed that night. You wake up the next morning. What happens? Like translating it from, uh, and I should tell our audience that, you know, we get to see you on video and we get to see some of the works behind you, which is amazing. Uh, I wish our audience could see this, but, uh, but you get up that next morning. What is a first step toward this? Are you talking when I was 45 years old? That's just 25 years ago. I've been working yeah. on it for 25 years. Unbelievable. Yes. What is, I, I guess I just, I'm trying to understand how you get started with a vision this grand? Uh, well, now you have to create pieces that are going to go into that park. And I started with um, um, figures that were, I say, thought were a little simpler. And those were fourth Nephi uh, figures, dancing figures, like uh, the blind to see, the deaf to hear. I would create Maquette size, a maquette means a small piece, anywhere from 12 to 30 inches tall. And that's where most of the work is done, is creating what you're thinking of small. But it has to be really the composition uh, and the the details to some degree uh, before you enlarge anything. So I I did those figures uh, from 4th Nephi. And then I I started doing other figures. Uh, Ultimately, I had to do the Savior. And I've, I've sculpted the Savior now about a dozen times, at least. And uh, I always use models uh, to keep my work fresh so that they don't all look the same. Uh, and uh, this is an interesting story, I'll tell you. Uh, President Packer took an interest in what I was doing, um, rather than go and how that happened, but he did have an interest in it. And he gave me an assignment, basically, to uh, sculpt the Savior, and he wanted to see it. So I did it out of clay. And I remember when uh, uh, President Packer came in, and uh, this is about, we're talking about the year 2000, okay? This is about 22 years ago. And uh, Elder Oaks came with him at that time. And I remember we had uh, we had talked about um, with the church art committee. Uh, well, when you sculpted the Savior, you didn't give him a Jewish nose, for example. And I know I didn't give him a Jewish nose. And I know what Jewish noses look like. I'm a rhinoplasty surgeon, and I've operated on them. And, and afterwards, President Packer came, and he said, um, I asked him that question. Um, what do you think about a Jewish nose, President Packer? And he looked at me, and he looked at the piece, and he shook his head, and he said, no Jewish nose. That meant something to me. In fact, President Packer uh, seems to know a good deal about the Savior's face. Um, and I went, one time I asked him, I said, do you want to give any, any more uh, suggestions about what to do? And he says, give him a good, strong face. He says, I'm not going to be your confessor father. And those are exact words he used. <laughs> I'm not going to be your confessor father, but give him a good, strong face. Then Elder Oaks looked at my figure and, and, you know, he said, 
who was your model? Did you, did you use yourself for this model? And I says, well, yeah. And he says, no, no. <laughs> the Savior is physically powerful as well as spiritually powerful. So when you're sculpting this, they sent me back to redo some stuff. When you're doing this, you use somebody who has built very powerfully. And so I did that. And not only did I do that in clay, which then became a bronze, but I executed that in marble. I would go to Italy and Pietrasanta and I did, uh, I took a few summers and I would take a few weeks off from my practice to go do that, learn how to carve marble. And the marble figure that we carved, I brought it back to President Packer to report. And he had um, also Elder Ballard was there at the time. And um, um, they said a few things uh, about this and that. And he says, can you stay around? Because I want to show this to President Hinckley. I said, sure, whatever you want. So uh, we had to take that marble sculpture over into the West Conference Room. And uh, President Packer did not want me there because he knew President Hinckley would not give his um, his real feelings if the artists were present. He didn't want to hurt the artist's feelings. So I was not present for that, but he showed it to all the, the, the 12 except for uh, Elder Oaks. It was out somewhere. And he had me come over after that. And he said, President Hinckley uh, said that he'll put this down in the missionary training center. Uh, but before it has to be on a pedestal so people can make eye contact. It was about two thirds life size. So it wasn't full size, you know, but still weighed about three or 400 pounds. Uh, but he wants you to take the marble out between the fingers, which I left in there because fingers break, you know, and then he wants you to take the nose and narrow it right in here. Mm. And I said to, uh, or president Packer said, this is no problem. President, uh, we got a rhinoplasty surgeon here. He'll take <laughs> care of that for you. So I had to make those alterations to the marble. And uh, then we took it down and it unveiled it. In fact, uh, Elder Oaks unveiled it one time when they had a, a, the, a lot of mission presence who were going through the MTC. That was real special to see that. It's still wow. down there. Um, and in fact, they said, how did this piece get here? Uh, well, President Hinckley put it there. You can't just uh, think you're going to put a piece of sculpture in there, you know. So very, very interesting things that happened from that sculpture. The, the piece that actually is going to be in the park, the 18-foot tall one, I've already sculpted that. Um, and I did that last year, finished it last year. And uh, I, I wrote the first check for it. It's donations, right? First check for $57,000. It's a hundred, about one hundred fourteen thousand to cast it. So, one hundred fourteen thousand dollars to cast the sculpture. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the wow. Mormon Battalion sculpture, which is in uh, uh, this is the place Heritage Park, is four hundred fifty thousand yeah. dollars, and that was uh, eleven years ago. Those two two giants. My goodness! All right, so you get this. You get this vision. I know from the website and from reading a little bit of uh, what you sent us, you have other people involved. As you've been going through this process, you've put together a board of directors, you've put together a board. When you share this with people, are you finding there are some people that just instantly catch this vision? It's interesting, Sean. What I, when I talk about what I'm doing, um, 
you know, when you see a hot button on the computer and, you know, you hover over that and you punch it, it just lights up. That's what these people are like. I've talked to hundreds of people about this. The people who are with me, they were hot buttons, all of them. Awesome. And when you talked about it, they light up and uh, you can see the spirit working on these people. So the people that I have right now, um, I have two other sculptors. One is just barely a, a new person who's come along and that's a different story. Uh, but Michael Hall has been with me since we did the uh, Mormon Battalion sculpture. That's when I was introduced to him. So we've been a team now for about 15 years. Mm. And um, there are over 70 sculptures that are going to go in this park. And uh, the, the title Liberty that I described to you is only one. There are lots of them that have one, two, three, four, five figures in them. So hundreds of human figures. Uh, and Michael has done about 20-something, oh, and I've done 35 or something like that. Um, and uh, the, a newer sculptor that came with Tim Ballard, his name's Jeremy Hooley. And uh, he has a whole corpus of works that he's been working on for years. They've been trying to build this uh, uh, a patriotic park. And um, when we found out they're doing the, we're doing the same thing, we, we have joined forces. Uh, awesome. And that's expanded the, the uh, American Covenant Garden. And you've figured out a location for this. Tell us how that came together and where it's going to be. Uh, we've tried for a long time to find out where we're going to build this. We thought the Los Angeles Basin, that was 20 years ago or so. Um, for a time, I mean, we looked at, at St. George. Uh, we looked at... Um, Nauvoo, um, but we figured out somewhere close to the Wasatch Front it should be, because that's where people really treasure the Book of Mormon more than anywhere else in terms of density. So uh, for a time, we were going to be at uh, um, at Thanksgiving Point, mm. and uh, Karen Ashton figured that finally, uh, after they decided they would have it there with Angela Johnson's work, they figured that what we're doing is too big. And it should have its own venue. So they changed their mind. And I'm actually, I'm glad they, they did. Uh, because where it worked out, it's, it's even better uh, to be our own person, our own uh, uh, enterprise. So um, we even were given land. They, they gave, we were given some land by uh, Sean and Ollie Michelle, mm. uh, seven acres. Draper City would have nothing to do with it because it was so they we don't it's going to be a tourist attraction. We don't want to jam up our roads getting up to the top of this uh, uh, this mountain. And so uh, even though we were given land and we this went on for a couple of years before they finally said, no, you cannot do it. And they condemned that land for that purpose. So we had to give it back. They specifically uh, stopped you from doing it. Yes, they did. Unbelievable. In fact, it was uh, uh, some kind of political rigmarole. Uh, at one time, uh, well, there were five on the, on the city council. Supposedly three were for it and two were against. And the Michelle brothers pushed for it and says, we need to have a vote. It's been two years. Can we build it there or not? And on the time, one of the people who was for it stayed home. Traverse Mountain Traverse is what we're Mountain. talking about. Yeah, that's right. We're talking about Traverse Mountain. So. Um, there were two and two, two for it, two against it, and they came to a vote. And the mayor, 
who had the deciding vote, who'd always said we wanted it and it was a good thing, without an explanation, got up and killed it. And that was the end of it. So this feels like, I mean, this, <laughs> you know, to, to draw a comparison, you know, the history of the church is this too, trying to find a home. You know, it's a big vision, trying to find a home and going from place to place. And so tell us where you ultimately ended up in. Heber City. Heber kind of found us, if you will. Um, John Hewlett, um, who's the biggest apologist for Wasatch County and Heber you'll ever find. He says, you need to come to Heber, he says to me. I've known him for some time, but I was reintroduced to him uh, recently by some friends. And he says, oh, yeah, don't mess with this. You just come to Heber. Heber wants this. So uh, we started talking to people in government in Heber, and it's true. They did want it. Uh, We found some land, uh, and uh, John found the land. And we put down down payments. We had some of our donors put some land or some money down to hold that. And after we did that, we were uh, giving a a presentation to some people in Heber. And uh, somebody from the Wasatch Community Foundation invited his friend who was over all the Sorensen land. His name's Mike Bradshaw. And he is is the sole, um, what do you want to call it? developer or the person that takes care of the Sorensen real estate, um, Sorensen real estate endeavors. Mm. I think he built uh, daybreak and now they're doing the same thing in Heber, 5,750 homes. And uh, they're wow. giving back to the community. There's a carve out between 50 and 70 acres. And he came to his presentation and he saw what I was doing. And, and he said, Hey, how about if we give you some land and you sell the land you have now and use that money to create sculptures? And I said, where's this land? Show it to him. And it's absolutely fabulous. And I'll tell you why it's fabulous. It overlooks the North Fields and the entire Valley of Heber. It's right up above where the, the uh, UVU Wasatch campus is. Oh, um, I know exactly where that is. Sure. And um, that's where all this land is, the carve out, if you will. and um, the Performing Beautiful. Arts Theater will be right next to us. They call it the Art District. And there we have between, oh, what, 12 or 15 acres that he's giving us. We'll, we'll jump in and say uh, for our listeners, uh, the, you, you hear the name John Hewlett. Hewlett may sound familiar if you're a regular listener. You know, we've had Jason Hewlett on the show multiple times. Jason is one of my closest friends, and uh, that is his father is John Hewlett. Uh, and then also, you know, we have a lot of listeners all over the country, all over the world. Uh, Heber, if you were leaving either uh, from Park City going to Provo, you drive right through it uh, when you're going the back way. And it's a beautiful, beautiful place. The church has a lot of property up there. And uh, our producer, Gene, spends a lot of good time up there. Uh, we have spent a lot of time in the whole area, Wallsburg and Midway and just beautiful areas. And there's, there's actually quite a bit of uh, tourism that goes up that way too. So there are other draws. I know Midway has a lot of festivals and then uh, Heber, such beautiful, beautiful land there. So when does the physical construction start on all this? So where we are right now is that Heber city has to pass uh, what they call a PID. It's a public infrastructure district. uh, And it's supposed to pass 
which then allows them to levy uh, a, a tax on people who will move into those places where the homes are being built. And with that, they'll do build the infrastructure. And the infrastructure then has to be built to some degree in order that we can have a tax description or a lot description by the surveyors. And as soon as that's done, they will then give the land to us. We have a, a letter of intent from um, Mike Bradshaw and uh, the Sorensen family. So we know uh, we'll be able to, to build it there. Uh, and that is also allowed some, some of my longtime donors actually came forward with a, a huge donation, uh, which would be a good uh, endowment fund. So uh, I've got several donors that are donated over a hundred thousand or have pledged a hundred thousand each that allows me to do a lot of the sculptures I'm doing right now. We have done, uh, we've enlarged about six and we're working on a number, what, seven, eight, nine, and 10 uh, enlargements, but you know, we've got 70 of them to go. So 16. Incredible. It's such a massive undertaking and I uh, can't wait to see it. One of the things I'm grateful for is uh Heber is, uh, you know, a good 35 minutes or so from my house. So this will be a, a place that I can go visit regularly. So I'll, I'll be very excited. What, a, what an ambitious project. If people want to learn more about it, uh, tell us what your website is, because you have a beautiful website that really kind of explains it all and yeah. tells all the people involved in it. It's a, it's a 501c3. It's called Monument of the Americas. So you, yeah, the website is Monument of the Americas, plural. Dot org. So if you don't put that S in there, dot org, you won't get it. Yeah. Monument of the Americas dot org. And uh, there's a GoFundMe on there. And yeah, you can donate $1. You can donate $1,000. Yeah. Uh, some people who donate more, there are uh, things that they can get. Basically, a $1,000 donation will, will put a park bench with their name, the family name, uh, and some people who have donated more, for example, these people who have donated a hundred thousand, I've sculpted their actual faces into the sculpture. So it's a wonderful testimony to their posterity. And of course, there's a donor plaque that will be put in front of that. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's really exciting. And you've gotten a lot of amazing people involved. Mentioned a moment ago, Tim Ballard. Yeah, we have uh, Governor Gary Herbert and his wife Jeanette are on the board. And mm. Jenny Oaks Baker and Tim Ballard. Yeah, yeah there's some you've heard of. Uh, there, yeah, there are a lot of uh, really awesome. And when I say powerful people, I don't mean politically powerful. I mean just powerfully wonderful people. We've had Jenny Oaks Baker on on the show before, and Tim Ballard does such incredible work. And to have Governor uh, Herbert on board, uh, all as as part of the advisory board, it's it's incredible the people that you've put together. How satisfying is it? to see this work really rolling forward and gaining momentum now. Sean, I always told myself, if I never see it done and I die before it happens, I know it's going to happen someday, <laughs> maybe by my successors. This, by the way, will be added upon by successive generations of sculptors. This is not just my thing. This is a cultural treasure that will be added to by uh, people in the next hundred years uh, because there's so much in the Book of Mormon anyway. I mean, who can sculpt it in 60 sculptures? You can't. Mm. 
just beautiful. I think the vision is beautiful. I can't wait till it all comes to fruition. And, and uh, I would love to come up and just see some of the parts as they are coming together because, uh, and we will definitely keep our listeners posted because uh, I know they're, they're all going to be super excited about it. And it's wonderful to hear of this beautiful vision. And of course we would, we would highly recommend to our listeners to get involved any way you can. And uh, yeah. we need sculptors. Uh, we need art students in the old days and Bernini and people like that did these massive works in Italy. They had a hundred people under them. We don't know their names some all the time, but that's what we're going to do. We're going to have a, a bunch of art students and sculptors all working on uh, different pods, if you will, different uh, projects until we get it done. Oh, just beautiful. Well, we can't wait. And again, I just love people with, with big vision and, and uh, this is, this is about as big as they come, Steve. I mean, this yeah. is really a big one. And I think it's just a beautiful work that uh, definitely needs to be done. So we are going to uh, wrap up with the question that we ask all of our guests. Mm-hmm. And I'll be really interested after now getting to know you a little bit to hear your answer on this. That is, uh, what does being a member of the church mean to you? It means everything, Sean. Everything. To be a person that actually is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping member of the church and the the personal relationship I have with the Savior, Um, I would not ever have done something like this if I had not traveled the path that I did. And the path involved covenant-making and temple-attending. It... um, and it was all rooted even in patriarchal blessing when I was just 12 years old, when I got that it's all kind of spelled out for me and came together in such a way that it was nothing short of revelation. It was uh, astounding. Uh, I'm, um, why did, why did the Lord give me this kind of a, a thing to do? Why me? Cause he knew I'd do it. And I made a covenant to do it. And that's what it means to be a member of the church. Keep your covenants walk the walk. Love it. He is an amazing artist putting together a beautiful park that will honor the incredible Book of Mormon, our great nation, and in so doing will honor our God and our Savior, Dr. Stephen Neal. Thank you so much for sharing your Latter-day Life with us. We appreciate it. Thank you, Sean. And my special thanks to my guest, Dr. Stephen Neal. Isn't he just amazing? This vision he has for this park. I love, selfishly, love that it is so close to my home. I just cannot wait to see it get underway and to see what we can do to support it because what an amazing place it's going to be when it's all finished. Thank you so much, Dr. Neal. Uh, this week in my Latter day life, you know, I had a, an interesting weekend last weekend. I was competing in a barbecue competition, and I've done a lot of steak competitions, which are very quick. You show up in the morning, you grill a steak, turn it in, it's it's a good time. But this last week was an actual barbecue competition. It was chicken and ribs, and it was only the second barbecue competition I'd ever done. First one I had done alone. I didn't have a teammate with me. It was just me, and I was nervous, but I felt prepared. It was about an hour north. And in order to get it all in in one day, you have to load in uh, at 6 a.m. 
to set up. I mean, it was our, it was still dark out there and I got set up and I was feeling good. And one of the steps that I do with chicken is called brining. It's when you drop the chicken into a, a solution with some salt and some other flavors in it. And it just adds a lot of moisture to the chicken. And I realized I had forgotten my brine container. Couldn't find it anywhere. That's okay. I can put it in a Ziploc bag to brine. And so I threw all the chicken, I was doing chicken legs, threw them all in this Ziploc bag. Didn't think to zip it up. It was leaned up against uh, another container. And as I turned to set down the brine solution, out of the corner of my eye, I saw something move. And sure enough, that bag of chicken turned, tipped over to the side. And I watched, of my 14 pieces of chicken, uh, I watched all but seven, so about half of them, fell on the ground. And I looked in just horror and disbelief. I have to turn in six pieces of chicken. It's hard enough out of 14 or 15 pieces just to get six that you're happy with. There was no scenario that I was going to get six usable pieces of chicken out of seven that were left. And the people around me were so nice. The other teams were like, oh, Sean, I'm so sorry. And they watched me as I had to pick up these pieces of chicken and throw them away. And there was just no way to use them. Got to be sanitary. So as I sat there thinking, do I just cook the seven and do the best I can? I just couldn't. So I hopped in my car. I drove down to a Target store that was around the corner. But there's a very specific brand of chicken that I use. And I know how it kind of reacts and everything else. And this was unfamiliar. And by the time I got back, my brining process, I was behind. And then my ribs, I was behind. And I hadn't turned them. And I just... It just felt like everything was collapsing down on me that day. And I've been really trying to focus on being grateful and positive lately. So I just kind of thought, you know what, just do the best that I can, turn in what I can, it's going to be fine. And and yet I was still just all day I had this nagging doubt. And in fact, toward the middle of the day, I started thinking, you know, maybe I'm just not that good at barbecue. Maybe I should just give up on all this. I love doing it, but man, what a mess I've made of today. And my ribs, again, my normal timing, I kind of have it all down to a process. I was completely thrown off. And then the time came to turn everything in, and I thought the chicken was just terrible. And I really wasn't even thrilled with the ribs. I thought the flavor was good, but they were overcooked. And it just felt like I had wasted a day. And as I turned everything in and it was almost time to clean up, you know, we, we have a tendency, we, we cook a lot more than what we turn in. And so we'll put it out on the table and other competitors will come by and we're not allowed to feed the public. We don't have food handlers permits, but sometimes employees and their families or whatever, they'll walk around and they'll, they'll try things. And there were some people there that were walking by and I was feeling just dejected and just really what happened today it was so bad. And I watched this family as they walked over to some competitors near me. And the husband turned to the wife. They were a couple about my age. And he said, oh, this one's really good. Try this rib. And I noticed she had a, a really beautiful accent. She said, no, you know, I don't like wet ribs. And he said, I know, but this one's really good. Try it. And she tried a bite and she said, oh, thank you. But I really don't love wet ribs. And then they came over my way and I said, you're welcome to try it, throwing away the rest of the chicken. But I had a ton of ribs sitting out. I said, you're welcome to try it. And he said, oh, my wife doesn't like wet ribs. She's from Brazil. And she said, yeah, in Brazil, we only do our ribs dry and we don't use sauce. And 
I, I was so kind of checked out at that point. I went, uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> I just, whatever. I was ready to go home. And the daughter took one of the ribs. I said, look, you guys can have whatever you want. I'm going to throw the rest away when everybody's done. And the daughter took a bite and said, mom, try this. Just give it a shot. And she was like, well, I don't like wet ribs, but okay. She took a bite and her face lit up. And she looked at me and said, what is on this? And I kind of showed her some of the products I use. And she said, oh, and she reached and grabbed a rib and she started eating it. And the husband looked at her and she said, these are the best ribs I've ever had. And he said, I've never seen her react like this to wet ribs. You know, she only likes dry rubs and never wants it with barbecue sauce. And she said, oh, this these are so good. What's your name? And we stood there talking and all of a sudden I started to feel a little bit better because this woman loved the ribs that I had made. And then she reached down and took a second and her daughters just started laughing on mom never eats too. As they stood there, she kept talking about how this was the best ribs she had ever had. She ended up eating six ribs while she was standing there. And there were probably six or seven left still. I would have been thrilled if she had eaten them all. I was so happy to meet this wonderful woman. I needed that. And I know she didn't know how down I was because she kept saying, oh, you'll win it all. And I knew I wasn't going to win. But she just kept saying, this is the best. And her family followed me on Instagram for my barbecue page. And it was just this whole wonderful moment. And then she went and toured around and came back with her family and said, these are the best and had one more. She said, "I, I can't get enough of your ribs. And we took photos together. And at that point, it didn't matter how I ended up finishing, whether I won or lost, I couldn't have cared less because she had made me feel so good. Somebody appreciated me. And I know sometimes in our lives, we think to ourselves, like, we'll watch a great talk at church and we'll think, oh, that person already knows how great they are. I'm not going to text them or I'm not going to take them aside and tell them what a great job they did. Or, you know, we'll we'll see someone and we'll think to ourselves, they are the nicest person, but we don't think to tell them because we think deep down that they must already know. And her husband had already made some comments like, look, you have the equipment, you're here competing, you obviously know you're great. I didn't know I was great, and that day I wasn't great. Now, ultimately, I did a lot better than I thought. I finished fifth place overall, which is a miracle in and of itself. But I couldn't have cared less. If I had finished dead last, and by the way, fifth place, it was a pretty small competition. (laughs) But if I had finished dead last, the way this family made me feel... And I'm so grateful to have the photo with them. And I definitely decided I need to open my mouth more and cheer other people on. And in fact, I was telling my wife this story as we were out walking on the trail next to the Provo River, and there was a guy fly fishing, and he had just pulled in a big trout. And I looked over and I said, wow, that's a beautiful fish to my wife. And then I thought, no, I need to tell him. So I started clapping and he looked up and I gave him a big thumbs up and I said, hey, beautiful fish, man. He waved and said, hey, thanks. Why don't we do that more often? I don't. I don't do it enough. We can make people feel good. We never know who needs that little pick me up. I'm so thankful that that family decided to stop and just made me feel so good about myself. And I am definitely committed to making other people feel better about themselves. It's free. It costs us nothing. And guess what? We feel good also, sometimes even better than the person that we're trying to make feel good. I'm just thankful for that. I'm committed to it. 
And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. We really appreciate it. If you enjoy the show, do you know someone who could use the show as a pick-me-up? Do you know someone in your life who needs good content? All these amazing people we get to meet on the show. If you could share it, it would mean the world to us. And once again, uh, if you could leave us a five-star review, we're so grateful for our reviewers. The Latter-day Lives podcast was produced by Gene Chittister. Social media by Skylar Fleming. I've been your host, Sean Rapier, and I think that's all we got for you this week. So until we meet again, there's a great, big, beautiful world out there. Go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>